0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and better discussion. And it's fine for seasoned bible readers but really i'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers those who have not yet gotten into the great word of god more information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. for the radio show we're in the book of genesis a great book my goal with the show is the same as the book to encourage you to read and help you understand the bible so please read along with us before during and after listening to the show last week we started into the story of joseph in chapter 37 of genesis And pretty famous story where Joseph is given the multicolored coat from his dad, shown favoritism. But he's also a gifted young man, has a lot going for him. He receives visions, dreams from God that seem to point to a a great future. But the problem is his brothers don't agree with that assessment. Can't stand him and eventually sell him into slavery. We saw the emergence of Judah. We saw Reuben try to exert some influence. That didn't go very well. And so we enter chapter 38 this week. We've got an interlude, which is bracketed between Jacob's descent into grief at the end of chapter 37 and Joseph's descent into Egypt, also at the end of chapter 37 and at the beginning of chapter 39. This gap also serves a literary purpose. It heightens the narrative's tension with respect to Joseph. So it's an interlude which allows Joseph to settle, so to speak, in Egypt, implying the passage of some time. And This story is also going to underline Judah's place in the big picture. We've already seen hints of that in chapter 37. He he might seem not all that relevant, but it turns out Judah will ultimately be a very big deal, short run and long run, even more so than his more famous brother, Joseph. And we definitely have seen the need for leadership in this generation, given the family dysfunction, the disunity, and a need for the transmission of God's way. How is that going to go forward? Is it going to be Joseph? Well, Jacob and Joseph sure think so. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, no, that's not going to work very well. Judah showed some promise in chapter 37, and so we're interested to see how chapter 38 plays out with him and Tamar as the stars of this show. Now, chapter 38 is a very wild story. It's not often taught or preached. It's R-rated material, but it is key to Israel's future and ultimately the lineage of David and Jesus, as we'll find out. Lord, show us what you want from this passage today. We look forward to what you have for us. We love you, we praise you, and we lift up our lives to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station and the show. All right, we'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're starting in Genesis 38 today, the story of Judah and Tamar, an oft-overlooked story, but a really important one for the future of Israel. So, we'll start with verses 1 through 5. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hiram. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Now, verse 1 has a lot in it. it. might not look like much. It's geography and time, but it's really a big deal for us to wrestle with this. He moves to Adullam, which is 15 miles northwest of Hebron, and we're told in the text at that time, and so it begs questions right after chapter 37. Why did he move right after that? Was it shame? Was it fear of being found out by his father? Was it disagreement and general tension with the brothers? Does he just want to get away from the knuckleheads and have a fresh start, Or is it none of that? We don't know. But at that time, he moves on and he separates himself from his family to be with Hira, who is, verse 12 tells us, his friend. So, one thing that's promising is that, like Abraham, he's willing to leave the area and leave the family for greater things. But is this a greater thing? Is this a good idea? On the one hand, he refuses to live with or near his animal like brothers who were a mess in chapter 37 and had been before that. But we also know from the scriptures that trouble often begins with friendship with the world. We've seen this at Sodom and at Shechem uh, in this generation. Now, the good news is he's going to be with a friend, not to be near a city. So that's encouraging as a sign. This is the only mention of friendship for God's people in Genesis, and it is with an outsider. But as Leon Cass notes, the capacity for friendship bespeaks a certain nobility of character and a certain gift for political leadership, and it hints at his subsequent rise to leadership. It's also interesting in light of the two other major references to friends in the Old Testament, David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi, along with Judah, Cass observes these are the lines leading to King David, and they begin with people who are capable of robust friendship. Now, verses 2 through 5, we have him with a Canaanite wife and then three sons. Now, the former is not prohibited yet, and maybe it's not a great idea, but what are his other options? Does he go with Canaanite women? The brothers presumably chose Shechemite women. We're not told that in the text, but they probably are marrying locals of some sort, and he chooses a Canaanite here. Verse 2 also has the verb see, which is not a good sign. We've seen that throughout Genesis. And the verb took is not very encouraging, given all the the force and the recent rape in chapter 34, might makes right, it's a man's world, and that sort of thing. It sort of feels like that, but there's no sense here that he's used stealth or force to, quote, take his Canaanite wife. It looks like the standard courting and the like. So, the language here is not great, but it doesn't seem like there's anything awry. All right, so let's read verses 6 through 11 for more information on his three sons. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also." Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So in verse six, Ur has an arranged marriage to Tamar, who is presumably also a Canaanite. We're not told that specifically, but that's a reasonable inference. Verse seven, Ur has some unspecified wickedness, which results in subsequent judgment and death from God. This leads to verse 8, what's called leverate marriage. It's formalized elsewhere in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10 is a great example of this. And the requirements and purposes of that are alluded to here. Jewish law endorses, even commands polygamy in this context. Now, there are a number of reasons for this. Could be to care for the widow and any other children, daughters at least. But it specifically points to, as possible, marriage as procreation, and also transmission of the name of the brother who's died, the land rights that they would continue in the family, and hopefully the transmission of faith, looking at the biggest picture. So then in that context, verse 9 is a terrific sin, the sin of Onan here, Sometimes this is identified as masturbation. In fact, a $2 word for masturbation is onanism, and it's named after onan for this. But really the issue is not that, it's coitus interruptus as a form of birth control, that he's not doing his duty as a brother of a deceased brother. He's violating God's will. He's violating Judah's will. He's using Tamar for sexual gratification, but not embracing his responsibilities you can see what's at stake here, right? He would fear the responsibility and or the loss of a state. We see this in the story of Ruth, particularly chapter four, where the kinsman redeemer is in a very similar spot, but Boaz there does step up to the responsibilities. One of the ironies of the story is that if he's worried about a state and money and possessions, He's choosing sex over money. And the way the story wraps up, it's going to be the opposite of that, as we'll see prostitution as a key part of the story, which, of course, is a different perversion of sex and money. It's also ironic that he didn't want to leave a legacy through this act, but he's still known for onanism. His name is famous for all time. He leaves a much larger unfortunate legacy because of his choices here. The other concern is that he's pretending rather than performing the levirate duty. It reminds one of Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. It'd be one thing to just deny it and walk away from the duty, but instead he's pretending to do it while faking. Ultimately, this is selfishness and sin against his brother. It's fratricide of a sort by not continuing his brother's line, against Tamar for obvious reasons, his father's legacy, and against God. And ultimately, it's a sin against himself. It turns out the Messiah is going to be descended from Judah. And so Onan is missing out on that opportunity and doing harm to himself. So verse 10 specifies that this is wickedness. And again, we have judgment and death. Kind of makes you wonder what Ur did to die way back in verse 7. God strikes them dead. And I think we wonder about God's justice. And a lot of times we want God to intervene with respect to evil. And you might be leery about this. But the good news is God does intervene, right? There's a remarkable injustice and sin here. And God does intervene powerfully to knock it out. And then that leads to verse 11, which is the third son, the youngest son, Shalah. Here Jacob says one thing and he thinks another, we're told in verse 11. And what's he thinking? Well, maybe Tamar's bad news. Maybe he really did intend to allow this when it got to be the time, but it doesn't read that way with the rest of the account. In any case, what is a delay in verse 11 becomes a much bigger problem in verses 12 and following. So, let's read the bulk of the story, verses 12 through 23. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Aneum, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who live there, where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enayim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. So, small clues in 12 and 14 on time give us the crux of the matter, right? Verse 12 says, after a long time, and verse 14, the word though tells us that she has become a seemingly permanent widow. Now, why didn't Tamar or her father say anything earlier? It's not recorded. Then maybe there's not much choice, at least for her in that culture. So, we'd like to hope that someone would say something, but it doesn't seem to have happened for whatever reason. Judah's loss and grief is understandable here. It parallels Jacob with his own sons, and he doesn't know why they've died, but still Judah is sinning in a big way here. First of all, it's personal deceitfulness, which has been running in the family for some time. The larger issue, though, is a breach of the social contract, right? Verse 8, there was a duty, and she has rightful claims here. She's unable to marry Shalah or anyone else. She's bound to her father, back to verse 11. She's also unable to bear children for their own sake, for her for her husband's and his son's name. Cass says Judah is willing to allow Ur to disappear without a trace. There are other problems here. It implicitly ratifies Onan's sin versus Ur and Tamar. It forces Shalah not to be his brother's keeper. And ultimately, it's quite selfish. It's pointing to the individual and what he wants rather than community, lineage, descendants, and the like. In verse 1, he was getting away from his brothers, and now he's not allowing brothers to do what they should. So while we might have hopes for Judah in, in the future in terms of leadership, he has a lot to learn in terms of brotherhood, fatherhood, and father in lawhood Verse 15, he's Caesar. Again, sin often begins with the I, and it causes trouble here. It's ironic that the veil was and is meant to limit lust and sin, but it doesn't do the trick here. It is when he's somewhat vulnerable. Verse 12, it's just after his wife died. And again, we have the mention specifically of Hira as his friend in verse 12, but not much of a friend, at least not much help in this circumstances. Of course, we have the irony that he sees her, but really he's blind. Verse 16, he doesn't recognize Tamar. His sons have been struck dead, he's been struck blind in this moment. The other irony is a small thing in the Hebrew, Enaim in verse 14 means two wells. And so we have here an ironic reference to the wells where Abraham's servant found Rebekah and where Jacob met Rachel. Verse 15, she dresses like a shrine prostitute. So we have deception and disguise revisited. We've seen that throughout the second half of Genesis, returning the favor, so to speak. Although this would not be codified in Israel's law later, Hittite law held that the father-in-law was next in responsibility and leverate conditions. And so if Shalah is not going to do it, then Judah would be the next in line to take care of Tamar. So it's taking things into her own hands. We wonder if this is improper methods, but what else is Tamar going to do? We've seen this throughout. We've got a lot of powerless people making decisions in difficult circumstances. What else can she do? The good news and the bad news is she takes things into her own hands. Verse 16, come and sleep with me. That'll be in great contrast to Joseph in chapter 39 when he deals with Potiphar's wife and goes a completely different direction. Verses 16 and 17, we have a proposition, a deal, and ultimately a price. Note the irony here of a goat and clothing again as Jacob had fooled Isaac and then had been fooled by his sons. Verse 17, we have the promise, but she wants more than that. Verse 18, she asks for ID and a pledge. It acts like collateral, so it's akin to having a driver's license and credit card when someone hasn't yet paid their bill. The request in verse 18 might seem suspicious, I suppose, but the seal and the staff were presumably of no value to her, so they're important to him, not valuable to her. In a way, it's the perfect form of collateral. Notice also his lust has blinded him, and it's a picture of his impotence that he cannot pay her. Cass points to the symbolism here. He has willingly surrendered his birthright and standing, not only in his present purchase of sexual pleasure, but also in his refusal to uphold the rights of his son and his son's marriage. Verse 18, she immediately becomes pregnant. You have the costume switch of verse 19. The immediate pregnancy points to God's providence, that he opens wombs, and it probably implies the impotence of Ur and underlines the sin of Onan. Verse 20, he sends his friends to do his dirty work verse 17 uses the verb send as well. Verse 21, a shrine prostitute was ranked higher socially than a prostitute, so it could be the friend trying to lend more dignity to the situation. And then in verse 23, Judah's concerned about becoming a laughingstock for the sin and or for trusting a prostitute. Let's drop the matter. Let's just keep moving on. There's no repentance here, so that's worrisome. He's just worried about the consequences of being caught. And then 23 ends with, well, I tried, it's good enough, and the episode seems to be over. Now again, the big picture here is that we were thinking Judah was the best of the other brothers in chapter 37, and he's not looking real sharp here. Can this be redeemed? Well, we'll find that out after the break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 38 so far in this episode, and we've gotten up through verse 23. Judah has unknowingly gotten his daughter-in-law pregnant, and she dressed up like a prostitute. He was not fulfilling his duty as a father with respect to levirate marriage and some other stuff, and now we see what happens. Verses 24 through 26, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shalah. And he did not sleep with her again. This passage starts out so terrible and then ends so beautifully, and so it's one of my favorite overlooked passages in the entire Bible. We have this illicit pregnancy. His response initially is to put her and the baby to death, to burn her to death. No attempt at context or explanation, no sense of compassion. Now, death would be the chosen penalty later in Leviticus nine, but that's not codified in the law at this point, and it's hardly the height of compassion or leadership. Now, maybe he's looking for an excuse to get rid of her to avoid marrying her to Shalah. Matthew Henry says it is a common thing, but a very bad thing to cover malice against people with a show of zeal against their vices. And that's certainly what we have here. So, we have prostitution and then his hypocritical prescription. Judah had been avoiding the father-in-law title as he's labeled in verse 25 and the responsibilities before this, but when it comes to putting her to death, he's willing to step up and fill uh, those responsibilities. So it's just terrible. Her sexual immorality and an illegitimate child would be an inheritance issue, but of course, the much larger issue is his sexual immorality and his failure to fulfill his responsibilities earlier in the story. It's interesting that this is a great example in the Bible of judging others when we have sinned or have even committed the same sin. Reminds us of David, Bathsheba, Uriah, and Nathan. But then verse 25 is delicious. Look what I have. No defense of herself, it's not needed and levels a stronger and related charge at him. She looked like a prostitute, but it was not for material gain. She had no intention of accepting the wage. She simply wants and gets here what is owed to her and that is justice. But she's taking a bit of a chance here, but this is a semi-public rebuke. Her, the messenger was a witness and it implies that more are available to her. It's interesting in that culture that three sources of non-picture ID, so to speak, were required to identify, and she's got that covered. Jonathan Sachs says, with great ingenuity and boldness, Tamar has broken through the bind in which Judah had placed her. And we've seen this quite a bit recently in Genesis, right? The dilemmas at Shechem with after the rape of Dinah, Jacob and his relationship with Laban. Tamar here is in a very vulnerable position, and she's found uh, an ingenious way around it. And then verse 26 is beautiful. His conviction is short and sweet. He declares her righteous. The other thing in the text here is verses 25 and 26 use the word recognize. Well, that's the same language that was used back in chapter 37, verse 32, when the brothers brought the coat back to Jacob. And so there's a big providential ouch and echo here. But in the end, Judah comes through. Cast calls it a remarkable turning of the soul. It reminds one of Acts 2.37 when people come to Jesus and are cut to the heart. In a sense, he has little or no choice at this point. Would he have done this without the identification, without everyone else there? We would hope so. Is this true or false repentance? In any case, hopefully it's a new day for him. And Judaism takes this as a very big deal that he is the, the Bible's first penitent. He's the first person to say he's sorry, and that's at the heart of religion. Christianity and Judaism start with sin and go to mercy and grace from there. So a key moment in Jewish history. Let's see where it goes from here, verses 27 through 30. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. So verse 27, twins are born here. Ironically, they are both sons and grandsons. And there's two of them, so it's interesting that they, in a sense, replace Judah's two dead sons. Then you have a strange birth in verses 28 through 30, struggle in the womb. The first out should have been the second. In a sense, this is a a grand version of the first-second reversal that we've seen throughout Genesis, where the first is second, the last shall be first, and the like. The birth order couldn't be more arbitrary. It extends the point that we saw with Esau and Jacob, where Esau barely beat Jacob out of the womb, but Jacob's the one who's named and chosen for the blessing and the birthright. Here, it seems completely arbitrary, and so it underlines God's providence, sovereignty, and his grace. Now, Perez, in verse 29, his future descendants would include David. We read about that at the end of Ruth 4 and Jesus Christ, Matthew 1, 1 through 3. And, of course, all of this is coming through Judah. And all of it is coming through this wild and crazy story. So, Judah's leadership, such as it is now and will develop, will manifest more completely through his descendants, David and Jesus. And it's also interesting that the last of unloved Leah's first set of sons is the one that this would take place through, and he is the one with the most godly name. If we go back to our discussion of the names of the children of Leah, Rachel, and the maidservants. Judah's sin here and Reuben's sin, back in chapter 35, verse 22, is going to be in stark contrast to Joseph's remarkable integrity in the next story. So, all of the things equal, it does point to Joseph as the best leader in this generation, but there is redemption at the end of the story, and perhaps there are other considerations, but that's a discussion for a different day. There are also many, many parallels with the much more famous story in the book of Ruth. There are also many parallels to Rebecca from the last generation. Cass says Tamar resembles Rebecca, whose deception of her husband Isaac brought him to his senses and enabled him to rise into his role as patriarch. And then Cass talks about Tamar's impact on Judah, which is crucial to the story as it unfolds. Cass says, by playing the harlot, Tamar was only making clear to Judah that he... And at least Onan had long been treating her as a harlot, as a woman to be used for pleasure rather than a wife celebrated for fruitfulness. Tamar teaches Judah and the reader multiple lessons about right and duty, the justice of keeping promises, the justice of treating all sons equally, the duty of brothers to uphold and care for one another, and the duty of fathers to care for all their descendants and not only those they prefer and love. Judah is the first person in Genesis to publicly acknowledge his own unrighteousness, a wrong he implicitly suggests that is worse than harlotry." And don't miss that point, right? She has committed a sin of sorts, but he's saying his own sin is worse. His sin is worse than prostitution. He repents of that and moves forward. Now, what's Judah's leadership going to look like from here? He had left his family behind to join foreigners. Here he learns what it means to be father, father father-in-law, brother, and son in Israel. And the next time we're going to see him is going to be with his brothers, presumably stemming from this event, and he will be exerting effective leadership. So again, a story that's overlooked a lot, it is crazy, it is R-rated, but it is absolutely essential to understanding the role of Judah in the family going forward, and ultimately, how Judah points forward to David and to Jesus. All right, we'll take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first two segments today, we covered Genesis 38, the oft-overlooked story of Judah and Tamar. Remember, we had hopes for Judah coming out of chapter 37, but chapter 38 opens with him being a hot mess, him and his sons, but it closes with a beautiful, magnificent finish. And so again, we're hopeful that Judah will serve that purpose going forward. We go from the famous story of 37, we had the 38 interlude with Judah and Tamar. And now we go to chapter 39, another famous story with Joseph and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. So, we start with verses 1 through 6. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field, So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So verse 1 introduces the change of scenery, and it's not just another country. It's a radically different lifestyle. So the first thing to note here is the culture shock for Joseph. He's going from shepherd rural family orientation to a powerful city. Imagine moving from small town You know, Indiana to Washington, D.C., would be an example of how difficult and different that would be. He's away from his family. Worse yet, he's been deserted by his family. He's a slave. He's lost everything, including his freedom, although, of course, he still maintains his free will, which we'll see powerfully in this chapter. Verse 1 has the word down once in the NIV, it's actually twice in the Hebrew. And Cass observes, we sense that the descent is not only geographical, but also moral and political. Joseph, unlike Abraham, does not go down to Egypt voluntarily. He is brought down. To bigger picture issues, again, we're interested in family, and we're interested in political, social, and cultural implications, in particular, the temptation to assimilate. How will Joseph follow great-grandpa Abraham and his calling in Genesis 12? to leave and to go. He's been forced to leave, he's been forced to go, but there's still the question of how he's going to relate to the new culture and should he assimilate. It's our first strong glimpse into life in Egypt, and it's going to be portrayed as a competing way in opposition to the God of Israel and what he wants for his people. And so, there's social, political, and economic implications of this we'll talk about. And slavery is how we're introduced to the country and its way. Cass says lordship and bondage are the most evident Egyptian way. That's how it's introduced to us as well. In terms of domestic life, the first thing we're going to run into in a few verses is are issues of sex and marriage and the potential problems with beauty. All these are things that we've seen throughout Genesis, and they will continue to play out from a different Egyptian angle uh, in this chapter and beyond. It's also our first look at Joseph, big look anyway. He's a young man away from home and under duress, And so, in a way, ironically, he has more freedom, even as a slave, because he's away from home. And frankly, it's amazing that Joseph performs this well and so righteously in this context. We're reminded of Daniel in very similar circumstances. But for Joseph, remember that he's been spoiled by Jacob. And so, his performance here is probably even stronger and more surprising. Now, verse 1 refers to Pharaoh. Consider that a title, not a name. And also note God's providence in verse 1 to place Joseph with Potiphar. Now, the results of this are lined out in verses 2 through 5 in a word, prosperity. Potiphar also sees God's blessing and gives Joseph more authority. God continued to bless Joseph and therefore indirectly Potiphar. Now, Potiphar is a common name. In fact, Joseph's wife in 41:45 is going to be Potipharah, so very similar to that, and likely a eunuch from what we know of the Hebrew word. Cass observes that this writes the meaning of Egyptian bondage into the bodies of Pharaoh's highest servants. That you could be a servant of the, the highest, most powerful man in the world, and it results in becoming a eunuch is telling indeed. Now for Potiphar's wife, This is interesting. Sex would be possible, but more challenging biologically, and kids would not be possible. So it's interesting that Potiphar's wife, to the extent that she had any choice in the matter, might have been willing to make some interesting trade-offs here, short run, uh, maybe long run. Maybe she ends up in a much more pleasant situation, but it turns out that she can't have kids and maybe can't have uh, great sex with her husband to begin with. We'll come back to that in a minute. It's cool that Potiphar's willingness to allow Joseph free reign is at the height here, but it's for his own prosperity. We could draw a number of light applications to business management and the like and different management styles, but his style is effective. He's not a micromanager. He lets Joseph do things. Joseph is productive, and it's left there. It's also clear from the text that God is with Joseph in good and bad circumstances, as we'll see throughout his story. He's not ever alone. Verses 2 and 3, God is given credit and glory, and it's not merely seeing Joseph as a great employee with a golden touch. God is the one getting the credit and the glory. And I think it's important for us as well to do this, and it's very difficult. How do you do this tactfully? How are you successful and the glory not go to you? How are you successful in giving glory to God without seeming like a big dork? And apparently Joseph has done that really well. Francis of Assisi is said to have said, share the gospel, use words as necessary, right? The idea is let your words do the talking, but there's a place for words also. And so one imagines that Joseph is tactfully speaking in the midst of the success in a way that allows Potiphar to infer that it's his God, it's Joseph's God, the God of Israel that is ultimately responsible for the success and Potiphar is able to divine that. So that combo is also interesting because it's another example of what I call God's provision and our participation. Joseph succeeds by God's grace and his effort. It's God's grace in advancing and his advantage in the household. He's not a field slave here. But how did Joseph prosper? Presumably, he was faithful and competent in little things and then the bigger things. And that's true for us as well, right? In the world and in the faith, we want to be faithful productive in little things, and then we build to bigger things. The same pattern will be obvious when Joseph is given more and more control over Egypt in a few chapters. It's interesting the extent to which Joseph recognizes his success is coming from God, and what sort of God, Elohim versus Yahweh. Is it the personal God? Is it a generic God? What does that look like? We see both words used here in the text. And finally, we have the nice little verse in 6 where it says, Potiphar has no concern with Joseph in charge, except for the food. So this could be literal, that he actually feared poisoning. Uh, It could also be figurative, that life was so easy that all he had to worry about was eating. Some commentators, at least in the context, take eating to be a euphemism for his wife and sexual activity. And that certainly links it nicely to the next passage. From what we're about to see, he should have also concerned himself with his wife, who's uh, a bit of a wild card. All right, verses 6 through 9, now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So verse 6 has his good looks. It's the same word used about Rachel in chapter 29, verse 17. Apparently, he gets his looks from mom's side of the family. He's the only man described this way in the Bible. Good looks, as with other blessings, can be a curse. And as everything in Joseph's story, it cuts both ways. And good looks in particular might be the most dangerous of gifts. As with Rachel, beauty is in the context of sex and marriage. But here it's going to be a question of fidelity versus adultery where potiphar's wife is attracted for the wrong reasons and pursues things improperly for seven she notices it right it's one thing to be good looking it's a second for people to notice it but she notices quickly and then it's followed by her shameless advances he had found p- favor in potiphar's eyes in terms of productivity but he finds favor in the wife's eyes as well for other reasons again we have another example of sin beginning in the eye And it's always countered by hearing the word, whether it's the word of God or whether it's the great words that Joseph delivers here in verses 8 and 9. It's her only line to him. It's two words in the Hebrew, but it is repeated. We'll see the same phrase back in chapter 39, verse 12. So she's only got one thing on her mind. Verse 7 says, after a while. So that's interesting that Probably she was attracted to his presumably winsome personality and his character. Maybe it's his increasing prominence and position that are also attractive to her. Remember that Jacob was smitten solely and immediately by Rachel's beauty. And so here we have at least to generalize the difference between males and females, right? That Jacob is drawn to physical beauty. It's probably a longer term range of attractions that gets Potiphar's wife in trouble here. I think it's easy to reduce Potiphar's wife to a two-dimensional purely evil character. I think we can also read it as more neutral in that she's just tempted by a difficult circumstance. She could be looking to cause trouble, but she could be the unsatisfied wife of a eunuch. Is this the command of a power play? Is she desperately lusting? Is she madly in love with him? We're not really told any of that. We know it's inappropriate. We don't know exactly what's motivating her here. Verse 8 has the refusal, but beyond merely saying no, he goes on to provide a number of reasons. Very tactful, logical, and explaining his position. I love his threefold answer in verse 9, and it's a model for us as we fend off temptation. His first consideration is himself and his position. In essence, I'm better than that. No one's greater than me in this household. I'm not going to condescend to do something like this. So he recognizes that it's what's in his best interest. Joseph is also being careful here and looking at the long run cost over the short run benefits, and often we get that reversed. In fact, many times with sin, it's the overemphasis of short-run benefits that gets us in trouble and ignoring or downplaying or failing to see the long-run cost. He seems aware of all that and is willing to forsake it. Walvert and Zuck say the way of wisdom is to consider the cost of sin. Joseph did not yield to sin because he was convinced God had something marvelous in store for him to do. So, he starts with himself. He motivates it from himself, but beyond that, he has his master and his respect for his master. And then third, in the bottom line, what he finishes with is it's a sin against God. All sin is against God. All sin is harmful to us. All sin is a affront to God. God is on his mind enough to say this under pressure. That's interesting as well that it pops right out of him. The other thing to consider here is that this was probably a rehearsed answer. It seems quite eloquent. One possibility is that he just pops off this eloquent answer, but if he, if, he, if he was wise, he knew this moment was probably coming and took steps to rehearse what he was going to say if it got there. I think there's a great lesson for us in this as well. Now, his convictions here are amazing, especially in light of the possible rationalizations available to him. He's away from home with little accountability. Again, the story of Daniel comes to mind. His family's deserted him. Maybe you might think what's in Egypt stays in Egypt. She's probably an attractive woman, relatively easy and frequent opportunities. He might think he, that he deserves it compared to the boss. Maybe he starts to rationalize the boss is not paying him enough or something, and he deserves this sort of compensation. It's a woman in a high position, kind of a power play on his part, be an accomplishment of sorts, a notch in the belt. Uh, He might think that she could help me. Of course, she could hurt him as well, as she turns out to do. Be quite a power trip for a slave to get with and and have sex with uh, the boss's wife and someone so high up as this. But he does not respond to the power play. They're in a slave culture that promoted sexual promiscuity, so he could have taken it as a command and rationalized it that way. Or he might have been motivated by fear that Potiphar's wife's not a good person to anger her. I guess I better give in to her. But at the end of the day, maybe the key word in verse 9 is wicked. That he sees this as just something that's way, way out of bounds for himself, for God, and for his master. Last thing to note here is that it seems like Joseph has come a long way from the petulant, spoiled young man of chapter 37. It seems like he's gained a lot of maturity as we're reading about him in chapter 39. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at Pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first two segments, we covered Genesis 38 and the big deal but often overlooked story between Judah and Tamar. And then in the last segment, we talked about the first half of chapter 39, Joseph and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. So we pick things up in verses 10 through 12. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. So, verse 10 opens with her persistence. And in response to people who are persistent in tempting us to sin, we have to be especially careful with that. She seems to show no shame. There's no repentance here, which is what we would have hoped for after Joseph's amazing words in verses 7 through 9. In chapter 37, Joseph was assaulted by the harshness of life, and here he's assaulted by the pleasures of the world, which are often a greater danger. Joseph avoids her, verse 10, very wisely, but it's interesting that he doesn't go to his boss. If he trusted him that much, does he tell him, but your wife is hitting on me all the time might not have worked very well. Was there a way to avoid the threat? But again, what do you do when you're powerless? We've seen this with Rebecca, Tamar, and now Joseph. It's easy for us to look at this and compare it to an employer-employee relationship when we can leave one job and go to another. That's not what this was. He was a slave in a foreign culture in a very different time, a very different place. And so maybe he really didn't have a lot of options and he's doing the best that he can. The last thing is the irony that Joseph was not with her, and soon God will be with him four times the text will tell us that. Verse 11, he's a faithful servant, but this time there's no one around, there's no witnesses, and there could be trouble. As a practical matter, this is a real concern, right? It's one thing to be with another person in public. It's a completely different matter when there are no witnesses. When it's in private, the temptations are different, the perceptions are different, both of the people involved and certainly to outsiders, Verse 12, his cloak is torn off him, reminds us of his robe being torn off him in chapter 37, and in this he's Christ-like, in that his clothes were stripped from him as well. Clothing is key to Joseph's story and its big moments. We'll see this again in chapter 41. There in verses 14 and 42, we'll see the change of clothes that he has when he's dealing with Pharaoh. That's a few chapters away. Matthew Henry observes it's better to lose a good coat than a good conscience. Henry also says those that have wisdom and grace have that which cannot be taken away from them, whatever else they are robbed of. Joseph's brothers had stripped him of his coat of many colors, but they could not strip him of his virtue and prudence. Those that can separate us from all our friends yet cannot deprive us of the gracious presence of our God. And then Dallas Willard makes a nice little observation here. If Joseph had filled his mind with thoughts of romance or sexual indulgence with Mrs. Potiphar, she would have gotten him and not just his coat. And the last thing in these verses is that you run from sin when necessary. We see this in 1 Timothy 6.11, 1 Corinthians 6.18-20, the idea of fleeing from sin. Verse 10 had Joseph staying away. Verse 12 has him running away. Now, sometimes people are too quick to run away. And notice that he did not run away right away. Back in verse 10, he ran away when it got super serious. reminds me of Daniel one. And again, it gets us back to the context of that time. What options did he have? So maybe in our context, we have more ability to run sooner, and maybe that's the wise thing to do. But this time, she crosses the line. They're alone. She does something physical. She touches him, takes the cloak, and so the best option there is to run. All right, verses 13 through 18. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story, that Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So verses 13 through 15, the scheme is told to the servants. And then in 16 through 18, it's repeated to the husband. And many times when someone is attacked in this manner, the result is shame. But that's not where she's at at all. Verse 14, a derogatory term for the man in charge of Potiphar's household, this Hebrew. And it's also used as a generic term for foreigner, uh, until later. And so this is also pointing to prejudices. Uh, look at also the, the pronouns here verse 14, us, verse 17, me. Verse 17, she adds in the word slave, wants Potiphar to think of himself as the master and in charge. The sexual references here with play, mock, laugh, make sport. Matthew Henry says, as with Christ, the best of men falsely accused of the worst of crimes by those who themselves are the worst of criminals. And this is a terrible thing. The slander of this and the devastation that it's going to cause are terrible sins. And so Joseph, who's done nothing wrong, is going to be put in the Christ-like position of being innocent and yet guilty and judged. She's willing to violate the seventh commandment, adultery. And then she ends up violating the ninth and the sixth as well. She's willing to have him killed, and she's certainly willing to bear false testimony as well. At the end of the day, it reveals her motives, how little value Joseph and her husband, for that matter, had to her at the end of the day. She's willing to, of course, trust Joseph, but she's also going to do damage to her husband and the effectiveness of his household. Now, what about the servants? You'd think they had to know. Why didn't they step up versus the official story in verses 13 through 15? Is it xenophobia? They're upset it at his out-of-the-blue success. Maybe there's jealousy here maybe there's fear and someone should step up, but eh, you do it. And maybe there's no one that has the courage to get the job done. In any case, the servants almost certainly knew that she was a mess, but they don't do anything to help Joseph out. All right, verses 19 and 20, when his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. A small thing, but notice the reference to your slave again pops up here, so it's blame evasion. She's putting the blame on Potiphar for what Joseph did to her, supposedly, of course, reminiscent of Genesis 3. I'm really intrigued by Potiphar's anger here in verse 19. Is the anger at Joseph, his wife, or just the situation? There's no inquiry. There's no words recorded. Is he in shock, disbelief? Is he irritated that he has no good way out of this and he's about to lose face in public with what has happened with his wife or he's going to lose his golden boy and God's blessing? You could picture him being angry with all sorts of things, right? What does he expect from his wife? Does he know his wife is a hot mess? Does he fully trust uh, Joseph and so on? We don't know, but he's angry and you can picture him being angry at any or all of that. That's one of the problems with sexual harassment in general. It often reduces to he said, she said, and ultimately we don't know. They know probably what happened. They may perceive events differently, of course, but we on the outside have no way to know. The accusations are terrible. The sins are terrible. And so which way do we go with this? And so that's the position that Potiphar's in. And so anger, frustration, and the like, certainly a reasonable response. If he's angry at Joseph, it's interesting that he would trust his wife over Joseph. Again, we're left with wondering how much character did she have in other context or how much character has she shown, and we just don't know there. If, if it's Joseph, it's interesting that Potiphar had trusted him with everything previously, so he would have felt betrayed, and that necessarily leads to wondering about other violations of his trust. And we've all experienced this, right? We trust somebody And all of a sudden, we have good reason not to trust them. And all of a sudden, everything else unravels. We're not sure what to think about anything anymore. And it's always disconcerting when that's the case. But that said, there's evidence here that Potiphar actually believed Joseph or at least suspected his wife's story. For one thing, if the wife was trustworthy, it probably would have resulted in Joseph's death. And the imprisonment in verse 20 is in a not-so-bad place. His own, we're told that in chapter 40, verse 3, and it still allows him to connect to Joseph. Now, maybe he would have liked to have done nothing to put this away, but he can't. She's gone public. She has witnesses. She has the cloak. He's been backed into a corner here, and it would have been tough around the house if he had gone against his wife, so there's always that consideration as well. Sort of reminds me of Darius, King Darius in Daniel chapter 6, where he's also in a difficult position, and what else can he do? And so for us, it's especially important that we act in a righteous and just manner, even when we seem to have few options. It's still incumbent on us to act morally, ethically, even in those difficult circumstances. And finally, for Joseph, even more so than in chapter 37, his faithful service resulted in bondage and injustice. You know, we can draw application here to us. You know, we're just trying to do the right thing, the honorable thing, and you still get in trouble for it. And so this is a terrible injustice. As bad as chapter 37 was, a lot of that was because it was the brothers doing it against brothers. But here it's terrible because there's just gross injustice in all this. Joseph's done everything he can reasonably to avoid the sin, and yet he still ends up in prison. Like Jacob with Isaac and his sons, he's sacked by a false garment and a false testimony. So the irony of how this has played out through the generations is still here. It's also opposite of Abraham who played fast and loose with his wife's chastity and prospered unjustly. Here it's Potiphar's wife who plays fast and loose with Joseph and he is punished unjustly. And there are still the parallels with chapter 37. In both cases, he's the favorite in the household. He's the first among equals. He's envied and hated by his peers. He's stripped of a garment and thrown in a pit. And he narrowly and providentially escapes death. He's faithful in the little things, verses 2 through 6. He's faithful in times of temptation, verses 7 through 10. He's faithful when he's treated unfairly, 11 through 20. And then we're back to the little things in the next passage, verses 21 through 23. What do you do after the injustice? What do you do when you've gone from the heights to the depths? How will Joseph respond in this moment? And so, verses 20 through 23, But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So verse 20 in the middle there has that wonderful word, but, right? As terrible as things are, the word but tells us that there's something else coming. I think of a, a picture of, you know, a landscape that's just been blown away by fire or disaster. And then there are shoots of life that pop up. In the weeks to follow, where the green grass or the trees come back. And that's what's happening here. In the midst of the devastation, you can see the shoots and the growth of what will come next. Verses 21 and 23, twice the Lord was with him. We saw it in chapter 39, verses 2 and 3 at the start of this. In good times and in bad, the Lord was with him. He was at, with him at the beginning of the chapter, and he's with him at the end of the chapter. And it causes, verse 21's favor in the eyes. It's not just direct prosperity, but he's viewed differently by the warden. The credit at this point is not necessarily going to God. That will come later, hopefully. But for now, Joseph is given credit uh, and is allowed to prosper because of God's hand. Verse 22, authority follows from that. Verse 23, the success and the warden's trust follow from that. Again, we have a matter of God's provision, but also his participation, So, all this is good news, but Cass asks Can the pattern of success breeding failure be avoided? How do you be successful without inviting attack and jealousy and the like? And we don't have a resolution to that question yet. The other question we don't have even asked at this point is we know that Judah at the end of chapter 38 has learned something, right? He's the first penitent in the Bible. As terrible as he was in 38, we know that he's moving the right direction. We don't know what Joseph has learned here. Nothing is said. recorded about his thoughts on the matter. Last thing here is that Joseph is the only biblical example to conquer this giant, the giant of lust and sexual immorality and the like. It sacks plenty of other people, including David, Samson, and Solomon, especially in light of what we just read with the failure of his brother Judah in chapter 38. So, it is a victory over the giant, but it does come at heavy cost. In any case, what does he do? At each negative turn, Joseph turns it to good and he does the best with what he has in every given small task. One of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And that's been provided by God here. But Joseph faithfully responds to what God gives him. God is much more concerned with our character than our circumstance. We see this in the book of Daniel, Habakkuk, Job. He cares much more about our joy than our happiness. And while Joseph could have sinned and it gets redeemed, uh, that doesn't happen here. Joseph takes care of business all the way through. Matthew Henry observes he was a type of Christ who took upon him the form of a servant and yet then did that which made it evident that God was with him, who was tempted by Satan, but overcame the temptation, who was falsely accused and bound, and yet had all things committed to his hand. How was Joseph able to do it? Believing in God's sovereignty, his experience with God, his dreams and prior faith. He believed God wanted the best for him, and he was strengthened by God's evident hand in his life then and in the past. May God do the same for us, and may we respond with the integrity of Joseph. Good to be with you today. Remember, previous podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Interact with me on Facebook, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.